I'm always surprised when that thing comes on. If it's got a wire going to it, I can mess it up. It'll just work backwards from the way it should. Uh, good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. I got a text from Mike yesterday morning wanting to know if I could speak for him today. And I told him I'd be glad to, and I kind of go along with what Matt said a few minutes ago. I'm not nervous when I get up here, but I do tremble just a little bit. When I first started preaching some 50 some odd years ago, I, I, if it weren't for a ballpoint pen, I wouldn't have made it through that first sermon. Uh, nowadays, I'm more comfortable, more relaxed, but the tremors are essential, I'm told. And your day's coming. Uh, thank you for being here. I want to talk with you a little while this morning about this concept of keep thyself pure. Let me read a few passages with you in the book of 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5. And verse 22. Do not lay hands too hastily on anyone and thereby share the responsibility for the sins of others. Keep thyself pure. The older translations say, this one says, keep yourself free from sin. Purity basically means that, undiluted. 100% gold means there is no element in it that helps it be stronger or anything like that. Pure gold is different from 14 karat or 10 karat or, or things like that. It's, there's just nothing else there. That's what it is. And these other verses say the same thing. James, the third chapter, verse 17. The wisdom from above is first of all pure, and it's undiluted. That's just what it is. And the passage in Titus says the same thing. I, I want you to be pure. And God desires that from each and every one of us. And it's kind of a difficult thing in an anything goes society. I saw this advertisement some time ago, an exercise in self-indulgence. And I think, okay, we're Americans. We don't need to exercise in self-indulgence to build up our ability to do it because we pretty well indulge ourselves. The problem that most of us have is we weigh too much or, or something like that. There's just no stopping. Uh, mother told me years ago that you will never be sick like you'll get sick if you eat too much of this fudge. I've never had too much fudge, and it's never made me sick. She had a point, it'll rot your teeth. Well, it does that. It, there are other bad things about it, but... I love it anyway. We self-indulge ourselves. Janice Joplin sang a song decades ago, me and Bobby McGee, where she says, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. And that is the most depressing lyric I think I've ever heard in a song. Freedom just means I've got everything. There's nothing left to lose. And she's committed, well, not suicide, but drugged herself to death with an attitude like that. How does a Christian behave in this kind of society when God says, keep yourself pure? And I, I just want to break this down into elements that I think we can handle a little bit better. I'm going to talk with you about purity and the alcohol industry, not just alcohol itself, but the industry that backs it up. Because we'll be told things like, schools need the tax money. Healthcare needs the tax money that comes from the sale of alcohol and the city's got it, and the county doesn't, and how are they going to share with us, and things like that. And did you poison your grandchildren for a dollar? Now, I didn't say children. 
Because a lot of times we just kind of go on through life and we don't think about our kids. We do think about our grandchildren in, in a very different way. They are so precious. They, they're grand. And that's why they're called grandchildren. And we love them to death and we'll spoil them and give them anything and then give them back to the parents and say, take them home. Well, now when I start talking about this, I want to tell you what a friend of mine said years ago. He said he hates to talk about alcohol and the church because I've never been able to please anybody. Some want me to say a lot more about it than I feel comfortable with. Some think if I mention it, I've already talked too much. I don't see that God has a strict prohibition against it. I do think He has revealed to us words of wisdom that ought to guide us in this life more than anything else. In the book of Proverbs, the 23rd chapter, verse 29 through 35, I'm not going to read that. Who has sorrow? Who has woe? Who has wounds without cause? They who go to the wine. It stings like a serpent, bites like an adder. And it gives you things like this. Be careful with it. Extremely careful with it. And I'm going to come to my conclusion here in just a moment. And don't tune me out till I get there. In the book of Leviticus, the 10th chapter and verse 9, God is offering instructions to the Levites. You will not drink wine when you come into my sanctuary. When they go into the temple to offer worship to God, they will be absolutely sober. And I think God means that to be a part of our everyday life. And I do want to read these three, uh, these, uh, three passages with you. The book of Romans, the 13th chapter in verse 13 let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. I want you to be sober, but I want you to remember those other words that are in this same passage. In the book of Galatians, the fifth chapter. Galatians chapter 5, verse 21. Envying drunkenness. I just want you to see that it's there in this list of sins in the book of 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 3. In all this, they surprise you that you do not run with them to the same excess of dissipation and they malign you. Now, verse 3. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. What he's saying in that verse is that you lived your life before you came to be a child of God and there were some things that you probably did that you shouldn't have done and I want you to realize that, that that's all there is for you because now you're different. The Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lust and drunkenness, and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Do you see what's listed there? All of these various sins. And I want to talk to you just a minute about this. This is the Greek word for drunken. I want you to be sober. When you come into the presence of God, you Levites, when you come here to do service to me, I want you to be sober. Sobriety is one of the watchwords of the child of God in the New Testament. Kamois, excess debauchery. You know what debauchery means? You've got a little cell phone. Somewhere in there you can find a definition for this word. 
sexual immorality is coupled with it because we lose our inhibition. The toys, drinking parties where we go to, anticipating that we're going to get just a little bit high. I don't know if you've seen things like this. I've never participated in that. I have seen it. People pass out in drinking too much. They won't remember tomorrow what they did today, but they can do some awful things today. Coitus. Chamber. I don't know why we, we use words like that, but we don't understand the meaning of it. That which ought to take place behind closed doors. That's chamber. Sexual immorality. Romans suggested that. Peter suggests that in those words. I think we need to be extremely careful with how we treat our bodies. We need to be sober at all times because there's a point that I want to make here. I know a lot of people who drink. Socially, unsocially, I don't even care about the use of that word. If you drink regularly, one glass a day or whatever it is you want to drink, I don't care. I don't know anybody who drinks, who hasn't at one time or other been drunk. I challenge you to think about this with your friends, with your family. My family's involved in it. Should they be? No. At least not to that extent. They have never drank that they didn't become drunken. And I'm persuaded that's the way it is with most normal human beings. This will ruin your life. That doesn't make it a sin. But when God uses the words in the context of Galatians, that makes it a sin. And we need to be extremely careful with things like that. Purity in the marriage industry. Uh, marriage industry? <laughs> Sure. Nita and I have been married going on 56 years. When we got married, we could do it for almost nothing. I think a marriage license back then cost $3. It was a good investment. Nowadays, they cost twenty dollars to $30,000 to $40,000. You can have a reception or not have a reception. Nowadays, it's all an event. You have to hire a place. You have to hire a band. You have to hire a catering staff for full sit-down dinners for everybody involved. It's an industry that we need to be understanding about and kind of careful. Uh, let me talk to you about the divorce rate. I think 50% is skewed, skewing the, the, the odds just a little bit. I know people have been married three or four times. I've only been married once. Does that mean half of us are going? No. It just means some of you are going to divorce three or four times. Many others of you won't divorce at all. But the adultery rate in America is astounding. It really is. Almost every family involved 
here has somebody that has committed adultery. Along with the misery there, am I suggesting to you that you don't get married? Probably not. Most of us aren't cut out for that. I, I want somebody to love. Do you believe in love? I kind of do, but I think it's a terrible foundation for a marriage. The foundation for a marriage is commitment. I'm committing myself to this person from now on. To love and to be in love with. We used to define love as oceans of emotion surrounded by expanses of expenses. You think about that, you'll come to understand that it's a true statement. Emotion, that's what it's all about. Now it's a commitment. And you need to understand that so we can be right with God. This world is full of temptations and it's full of failures. Yet there are thousands of people who keep it together. Is it always happy? Nope. I don't know how many happy years we've spent together. Probably none of them as a whole year. There are moments of happiness, and there are moments of unhappiness, and there are moments... Well, you're still the one. That's mine. And he made it sound. Starts out by saying, there are times I never want to see you again. And that's right. But you're still the one. I want whispering in my ear, things like that. I want somebody to hold on to. We've kept it together. Passages like in the book of Proverbs will suggest to you that there will be women who will try to seduce you, try to entice you. It's not altogether women. We're looking there for prostitutes. There are men who do the same thing who are always looking for somebody to score with. I really like the concept in the book of Malachi. Malachi, the second chapter, God is talking to people about an attitude that permeates their society, where we don't treat each other right. And he has a lot to say about it. Zechariah is a longer book than it needs to be. In the book of Malachi, the second chapter, let me read with you beginning in verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she's your companion and, the wife, and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of, a, of the Spirit. What did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed when your spirit, uh, to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Verse 16 starts out with, I hate divorce. And that's God speaking. The literal translation there is, I hate separation. Once you've married, God means for us to stay together. To behave as one. I hate divorce. Why? Why? Because it never happens that somebody is not hurt. 
usually a plurality of somebody. You've got parents. You've got brothers and sisters. You've got children. In the New Testament, God gives reasons for divorce. In Malachi, he just says, I look at it and I despise it. I don't want to see my people suffer. I don't want to see them hurt. I don't want to see them distressed. I want them to be happy. And God means for us to be happy. A covenant companionship. Covenant of companionship. To me, that's the gist of what I get out of this passage. Two people agree together to be with each other from now on. And I think God means for it to be that way. We need to be curious about marriage. It needs to be talked about in church. We need to explain it in the best way that we can. I have for sake of time, I'm going to go kind of quickly through some of these. Integrity, purity and integrity. You understand what integrity is? The word integer means a whole number. That's integrity. We are whole. We are one. Job was a man who was holy. He loved God. He served Him. He worshipped with him everything that was in Him. And that's what he did. Anyone down here can lie and cheat and steal and set the wrong example. In fact, most of us do in heart. Is it told a lie? Ever cheated? Not as often as I've told lies. Steal? Uh, a pencil? Something like that. Most of us are not thieves in the general sense of the word. But many of us have set the wrong example. Almost every one of us has set the wrong example. When we become, when we become whole, and I don't know when that is. I, I think it has to age out just a little bit. Not in my teenage years. I was different in my teenage years. Some of you may be honest, and I don't know. When we become whole, we'll stop this immoral behavior and become one with God because that's what we are. We are one. God said, and we're going to do it. And that's the way we ought to be. Sometimes down here, we're still going to be insensitive or insincere or just stupid, but never intentionally. Intentionally, we're servants of God. And that's the way we need to be. Purity and breath. Uh, let me turn back to this passage in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9 and translations will read differently. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or, or costly garments, but rather with good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, I'm not just talking to the women here. I'm talking to the men as well. We all need to dress modestly, the older translations say, with shamefastness and sobriety. What does it mean by those words? Modestly means I'm going to dress according to the fashion. Right? If I were standing up here in a tuxedo, I would be immodest, overly dressed for the assembly that I'm in. 
I want to address the court, but that's not the only word. That's the word modest. With shame fastness. That's a different word. It simply means I can be ashamed. Remember tank tops? I think they tie around the neck and around the waist. Women used to wear them back in the 70s when I was in college. And I had a class, and there was a young lady in there, and I knew her. We sat beside each other, no flirtation or anything like that, because I was well married by that time. <clears throat> she wore one of those tank tops to school the first time she had ever worn one. And she couldn't stop tugging at it because it didn't cover enough. She was very uncomfortable, and so was everybody sitting around her. That's shamefast. She could not be ashamed and wear that top with shamefastness and sobriety. Now here, men and women both need to understand the way we dress impacts the world around us. How much can you take off and still be shamefast and sober? And sometimes not as much as we do. How far do you trust men or women? And that's a serious question. Just about that far. Because you know how men are. And men don't understand that women are the same way. I remember hearing the girls in the girls' dorm when I was in college, second hand, talk about guys. Guys talk about sports, we talk about cars, we talk about girls. Girls talk about guys. Exclusively, no. Not exclusively, but they do quite a bit. How far? I don't trust them at all. Who do you ask about modesty? We had a, this event occurred at church several years ago. We didn't have elders. Two or three of the men came to me because I was the spiritual leader, the preacher, so to speak. You need to talk to so-and-so because we can't serve the Lord's Supper with her. She is immodestly dressed seriously. And I agree with her. I went and talked to her. She said, I'll talk to my boyfriend about that. And she did. And he said, no, you don't have to wear as much as you do. At least he was honest. He was not spiritual. We don't trust people the way we should. What about asking God? How much can you take off and still be a Christian? Now, if your guy is playing on a ball field, I don't care if you take your shirts off or not. In the games, we don't do things like that. We need to be careful how we dress and how we undress. Because all of this impacts our sense of modesty, our sense of purity. And God looks at these things and will answer to him about them. I just wanted to share some of these thoughts with you today. I think they're serious. I think God talks about each and every one of them. And whatever we do, we need to put it on that godly plane so that when we stand before him in judgment, we'll be secure.
and receive a welcome home. Because all of these areas impact our eternal destiny. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, we want to offer you the invitation of our Savior to become a member of His body. We don't expect perfection. We would like to expect that you'll try to be what God wants you to be. If you're a member of the body of Christ, then you need the prayers of the saints on your behalf. We'll be glad to approach God for you today. If you need to come, you can do so by the standing of the saints.